0: You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. All right, well, welcome to uh, Judges again. How's everyone doing? You doing okay? Is everybody feeling okay? I I sensed a real heaviness uh, yesterday and today, you know, with the numbers and all. And uh, it's easy to you have your emotions go up and down according to whatever numbers happen to be reported, <laughs> and, which is so out of our control. And so I, I recognize that uh, so much of our, our moods can be shaped by external factors. But uh, we, uh, I, ta- I talked to a, a friend of mine today, and uh, we we're talking about elections. And, uh, and I, I love his response because people ask him, who he's going to vote for. And he says, well, my candidate's not running for office, unfortunately. I say, well, who's your candidate? Well, I'm, you know, I, I, I stand with Jesus. And so he's, he's my candidate. And it opens up all sorts of great conversations. But, um, yeah, I think uh, there's a heaviness. But uh, we're going to uh, dive into God's word where there's hope. Even in the book of Judges, uh, there is hope. And uh, we're going to be looking at a remarkable figure tonight, uh, Gideon. And so we'll start in Judges chapter 6. But let me start with prayer, and uh, we'll dive right in. Lord, thank you for your grace and your kindness. Thank you for the cross, that while we were sinners and far away from you, um, you died for our sins so that we can be set free and live. And we know that uh, regardless of what we experience, whether it be through pandemics or elections or whatever it happens to be we do know because of the life death resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ we know that as your servant Julian of Norwich put it all shall be well and so we live in that hope and we live in that joy and so help us uh, to be joyful in all things Um, as James teaches us uh, you know to to rejoice even in the midst of trials uh, knowing that all shall be well, and that you meet us in our trials, uh, we pray for those who are going through difficulties right now. I think of a couple families in our church church who has uh, who have lost loved ones recently. Uh, we pray that you would comfort them, and we pray that you would guide us as we look at your word tonight. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, so well, let's dive right in. Uh, tonight, we're well, actually, all through the Book of Judges we come across a lot of colorful characters. Now, it's hard when I say that, colorful characters, because it makes it sound like it's, it's, it's fictional. It's not fictional at all, but we do come across some really interesting personalities. Um, and the danger, again, with uh, if, if you misread scripture, is the danger is to look at some of th- these characters and ask the question, well, should I be like them? Or should I not be like them? Are they exemplars? Are they, are, are they people <laughs> to be avoided? Um, which, well, I think with Judges, I don't know how many exemplars there are, how many examples they are for us, uh, but, I, but they're human. And there's a humanness that we can identify with. And I think we'll certainly identify with our, our guy tonight. Um, but our, our approach to the book of Judges is that we look at God's dealing with Israel as a nation. It is the old covenant, covenant that we're looking at. Uh, And as God's people, we look at how Israel failed, um, God's expectations, God's purposes for for their lives. And then we can look at that, and then we can look at our own lives and see um, how we are walking with or away from God, right? And so in our journey in Judges, we come across a lot of different people, um, a lot of creative, wonderful, different kinds of people. We come across a guy like Othniel, was a bit of an outsider. We came across Ehud, who is uh, left-handed, because he's probably lame on the right hand. Uh, we came across um, remarkable women like Deborah. Um, we come across guys who need encouragement, like Barack, as uh, Sharon shared with us last week. And then we come across guys like Gideon. Now, Gideon is really important to the book of Judges. Um, Gideon, uh, the story of Gideon is actually the longest story in the book of Judges. And, um, he actually serves as a pivotal figure. And I mean that literally The, the story of Judges pivots on Gideon. Uh, and Gideon is a very gifted, but flawed leader who starts poorly, does well, and ends tragically. Um, but we've got to look at the context of Gideon. So let's read a little bit. It's a long section, so we're, we, we won't read all of it, but we'll, we'll be like, uh, let's see, uh, who is the guy? Um, Tiny Tim, what was his song? Tiptoe through the tulips. We'll just tiptoe through the tulips tonight. We'll just look at a, 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 a different parts. So uh, Judges chapter 6, verse 1. Here's a shocker. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For wherever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them devour the produce of the land, and uh, as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in numbers. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste, so that they uh, laid waste the land that they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And all the people of Israel cried out, to help, uh, cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt, brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. We read at the beginning those haunting words. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, what is the very last verse of chapter 5? What does it say? Yeah, and they had rest for 40 years. Yeah. Um, we read the land had rest for 40 years. And then we come to these familiar words. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, two things to note here. This is, this is interesting. One, it looks like Gideon, who's going to be our, our central figure here, gets called into leadership at probably a pretty young age. So he would remember the good old days. He would remember when the land had rest. That's what the story seems to suggest. And so that's part of his experience. He grew up when the, when the land had peace, right? Secondly, it's interesting, and I think it's intentional. There's a, there's a word missing where it says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the word that's missing is the word, say it again, again, no, and that's really important, Italian, good catch, that's what's missing, which seems to suggest, this is what some commentators have said, it seems to suggest that, you know, under Deborah, and under Barack, the victory that they won was so comprehensive, and it was so glorious, and there was, there was rest for so long, that that it, things might have been different, things might have been different, that this peace that, that had um, started, that the cycle of sin and misery could have been broken, and maybe, just maybe, the freedom that they experienced could have been stretched beyond the 40 years, and uh, it looked promising, it looked promising, and I was thinking this week about you know, people that I've known over the years, and you've probably known quite a few people who have struggled with addiction. And there's times where you think, you know what, I think they're going to be okay. I think they're going to be okay. They've been clean for one year, two years, five years, 10 years. It's good. And you think, okay, they're going to, and then something happens. And it's kind of what's happening here. It, it was not to be. The pull of idolatry was so strong. And so we read that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And as a consequence they get handed over to this group of people, the Midianites for seven years. Yeah. 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 But I don't, which translation do you have? The NIV. Yeah. I think in the Hebrew, there again is missing. Uh, I mean, at least that's what Barry Webb uh, pointed out. He says it. Yeah. You wonder, that was just a miss because it seems like it's a, re- a repeating thing, but Barry Webb points out, he goes, this time that word is missing. And he thinks there's significance there. Um, so who are the enemies this time? Hi. Um, the enemies are the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east, we're told. Now, the Amalekites were an ancient enemies of uh, Israel. We uh, met them uh, when they were associated with Eglon. Remember that? Eglon, the, uh, the, um, the, the big-boned uh, king. Uh, <laughs> The Midianites uh, were even encountered uh, during the time of Moses. We come across them back in Numbers 25. Uh, they were desert dwellers, apparently. Uh, not only wanting to conquer their age-old enemies, but they, what, what these guys do, it's a little bit different. They, they plunder the land. They kind of swoop in. They're like, you know, motorcycle gangs. They come in, and they just kind of plunder everything. And, um, and when the crops are ready for harvest, they come in, and they swoop away. Actually, the image that came to mind, I don't know if you guys ever watched the movie, was The Bug's Life. No, maybe not. I had little kids at one point. We watched Bugs Life. Anyhow, you had the grasshoppers that come in and they swarm everything. Um, They would take the livestock, the goats, cattle, donkeys, and the land is stripped bare. And it says Israel is so overwhelmed, so overwhelmed by these guys that they have to hide, right? They have to hide. They're hiding in caves. They're hiding in, you know, these places and mountains and just in order to survive, right? So these guys are, these guys are, 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 are um, ravaging the land. These guys are raiders, right? And, uh, and they barely survive. And we, and we come across the fact that they're reduced to starvation by the Midianites. And when they can't take it anymore, what do we read? What do they do? They cry out to the Lord. They cry out to the Lord for help. And when this happens, something unusual occurs. Because usually when this happens, well, actually, there's no usual because everything's a little bit different. What does God do? They cry out to the Lord. What does God do? Usually, what does it say? And God raised up a, a judge, right? But here, a prophet shows up. It's kind of interesting. A prophet shows up, and the prophet comes on the scene. He said, well, this is what the Lord says. You want to know why you're suffering? Well, God, tell. he's saying to you, I brought you out of slavery. I rescued you. I gave you this land. I gave you this people. I said, walk in my ways. But you have not listened to my voice. And that is why you're experiencing what you're experiencing, because you did not listen to my voice. So on the heels of this, we come across we come across something that's, it's, it's, that's quite interesting. We come across our main guy. Look at verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at, at uh, Ophrah, uh, which belonged to Joash, the uh, Ab- right, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has this happened to us? And why are all his wonderful deeds that the fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring you up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us, and he's given us into the hands of the Midianites I'm guessing of Midian yeah and the Lord turned to him and said go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian do I not send you and he said to him please Lord how can I save Israel my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least of my father's house and the Lord said to him but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man and he said well if I found favor in your eyes and show me a sign that is you who speak with me do not depart from here until I come to you and bring my present and set it before you, and he says, oh, "I'll stay until you return." So we'll talk about that in a moment. So Gideon starts his day like any other day. He's threshing grain, but he's threshing grain, and he has to do it in a secret place. Uh, he's doing it in a wine press that's kind of hidden. And so, what's he doing? He's he's living his life. He's trying to eke out, trying to make as much you know food. That's possible. Hoping for food, uh, he's not expecting deliverance. He's hoping to stave off starvation, so he's going through his day, thinking this day is going to be like any other day. And God shows up. Now it's easy to keep going here, but I think this, this, this—we should pause here because how many times are we going through the day doing our Ordinary, everyday work, whatever it happens to be, do we expect God to show up? No, usually no. I mean, we believe in God, and we, you know, but do we do we really expect Him to show up and do something remarkable in and through us? Yeah, I don't know if we do. I don't think. Well, and we're in good company. I don't think Gideon did either. Um, and so what happens, this fella shows up, Gideon, son of Joash, he's, he's working away, but as he's working, he, you know, you ever get that feeling when you're doing something and you have a feeling that somebody's watching you, like he's doing this in secret, right? It's like, I feel like someone's watching me and he looks and there's this mysterious messenger. Now Gideon sees him. I don't think he knows who he is. I don't think he has a clue. He's like, oh, you know, some mysterious guy's watching me. And the guy says to, well, uh, we know it's the the angel, the messenger, says to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And I'm sure at this point, Gideon looks over his shoulder and says, who are you talking to? Uh, Because here's your mighty man skulking down in a hiding place, threshing grain in a wine press. Like that's hardly the actions of a mighty man of valor. And uh, so it's clear, I don't think Gideon knows who he is. Is he a prophet? Maybe. Uh, but He gets an earful. He gets an earful from Gideon because, you know, this angel says to Gideon, right, um, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And what does he say? He says, huh, all right, the Lord's with me. Now, if the Lord is with us, why am I hiding in a wine thresh?" Away from everybody, our wine press, threshing. You know, why are we in prison, like, are we enslaved by the Midianites? You know, you say the Lord is with us. How is the Lord with us? So he's pretty, he's pretty spunky towards this, to the angel of the Lord, right? Uh, I don't think he knows who it is. And this mysterious messenger is very patient, says to Gideon, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Midian, do I not send you? At this point, Gideon maybe realizes, hang on, maybe something's, who is this guy? And uh, he's, and so he says, all right, well, oh, okay, maybe this is something more important than I realized. And so he says, let me go get some food and we'll talk about this, right? He, so he gives them some food and, um, and uh so he prepares a meal for the messenger and the messenger says okay yeah bring it now i think gideon thinks we're just, they're just gonna have a meal together maybe he's a prophet he's treating the prophet well and the messenger takes it but what does the messenger do with it it just goes out like it receives it like an offering like a burnt offering right well that moment that happens gideon and, and then the messenger disappears At that moment, Gideon's like, um, (laughs) I think the paraphrase would be, I am toast. Um, (laughs) Because he goes, "Alas, oh, Lord God, for now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Oh, I'm dead, right? And it's interesting. So the angel's gone. Now, in some mysterious way, the Lord is still there. We don't know how this is, but the Lord is still there. And the Lord puts his mind at ease and says, peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Well, then Gideon builds an altar. He builds an altar. Um, He's grateful. He's left, actually, with a sense of peace. He builds an altar. He calls it Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace. Now, Gideon has barely time to catch his breath. Barely time to to, to catch his breath when um, the Lord says, gives him the first task to do. Gives him the first job. And what's the first job? What's he supposed to do? Do you guys know? Have you you guys read this this week? Yeah. 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 So the first thing you're to do um, is to pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah pole beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God. Okay. And so this is a big deal. He used to tear down the altar of Baal that his father had and the pole of Asherah beside it. Now, you can't miss this. See, the issue for Israel is not the Midianites. What's the issue? Adultery, worship
1: another it's idolatry.
0: God. And we can't miss that. The, issue, the, the problem isn't out there. The problem is here, here you have Gideon, and he has to tear down the, you know, the um, temple to, uh, or the altar to Baal and Asherah, that his father, that his father has put up. And so, you know, this is, this is a big, big deal. But w- what we have to remember is that, you know, God, he has to deal with what's on the inside before he deals with what's on the outside. And so often we go to, Oh God, change my circumstances when really what God is wanting to do is change our hearts. Right. And uh, it's interesting. So yeah, I wrote down in my notes, sometimes we think, you know, if only the pandemic would end, if only this would end, then everything would be better, but we forget, maybe there's other issues. Maybe this pandemic in the midst of this pandemic God is desiring to do work in our hearts, right? So this problem for Gideon is close to home, really close to home. It's his dad's. Um, And it's interesting that Israel, what are they doing? They're crying out to God. God, help us. God, help us. They're crying out to God while they're worshiping Baal at home, right? You can't miss just, just how crazy this is. And uh, Mike, Michael Wilcock, in his commentary, he says, he reminds us that through the ages, God, the gods have not changed. But, and um, human nature has not changed. That humanity regularly creates for itself gods. And these gods are, are, are gods that can do things that we cannot do on our own, but they are not strong enough that we can't manipulate them. And so we put our hope in all these localized gods, whether it be an election <laughs> or or money, or whatever it happens to be. Now, Gideon has to deal with this. Now, you have to realize how awkward this is. And for some of you from East Asian backgrounds, you think about this, um, or even Eastern European backgrounds, think about this, to go up against your father. right? To go up against your father, this is what he has to do. Tear down your father's uh, you know, um, idols, basically. And Gideon, like I know in, in, in a lot of cultures, this is, this is very, very difficult. Um, but Gideon has to do it. His father's still alive. Yeah, because he shows up in, in a moment. <laughs> but and, there is uh, a one point here. Sorry?
1: I'm sorry. I'm sorry, David. There was very one point here. Uh, do you have my voice?
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, that was uh, very strange for me. As you say, uh, is that the, they worked with the, the, that kind of altar for Bell and Ashitaru? They make money from that one. Maybe her father, his father, uh, goes to make a business. Like uh, right, right now, I don't believe that one, but I can make money from that one. Why not? Because we see in the further, he says, "Let the Baal, Baal uh, fight for himself. Why you want to uh, fight for him?" That's some kind yeah, of yeah. why my. Do you know what do I mean? That's a like a business. He had that business, then people give money for that one. Why not? I use it. But I don't believe that one myself.
0: Yeah, it could be. I mean, it could we we don't know that if 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 the father is making money off this business by worshiping Baal. I mean, looking at the human heart, a lot of people, I mean, I talk to a lot of people who say, you know, I love Jesus. I love Jesus, and I like Buddha, and I like, you know. <laughs> like lots of different, lots of different gods. And they're able to hold lots of uh, gods at the same time, right? And so you wonder if it's a bit of syncretism or, 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 or what, what is it? But, I mean, Gideon's got the job. He's got to, he has to, uh, to cut this down. So he does it. The first job he does, sort of. He goes, come on, let's cut this down. But let's wait till it's dark, <laughs> right? And so he goes out at night. And he cuts it down. You wake up in the morning. The Baal uh, um, altars is destroyed. The Asherah pole is cut down. And, um, and, and the people in the village are angry. How dare you? And it could be, Naira, what you're saying. It could be that it was kind of a, a center for economic activity. Who knows? But um, everybody's angry. And they, want, and they want to get after. And they find out that it's Gideon. And they want to find Gideon and they want to kill Gideon. For how dare you? These are Israelites saying this. How dare you, Gideon, tear down an altar to Baal? I mean, we can't miss just the state, the spiritual state that Israel's in at this stage. Um, it's interesting. Now it's interesting. What does the father do? What does the father say? What does he say? Yeah, and so what does he, how does he say that though? That, that's essentially what he says, yeah. So the father comes out and they say, who did this thing? And finally we find out that it's Gideon. Bring out your son that he may die for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it, verse 31. But Joash, which is the dad, said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal is a god, if he's a god, let him contend for himself because his altar was broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbabel, Jerubbaal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down the altar. So the father is interesting. The father says, look, if Baal is the real thing, if Baal is a real thing, well, Baal will deal with Gideon. Don't touch him. I mean, if you guys think Baal's real, well, if he's upset, he'll take care of Gideon. You don't have to worry about it, which is interesting Interesting because what you see happening is the moment an idol gets broken, hearts begin to change. Isn't that interesting? The moment the idol gets broken, hearts begin to be transformed. And the father, I mean, you think he's being, but he's like, you know what? And so then the crowd comes around them and they're like, it's like typical crowds. It's like, kill Ba, kill Gideon. No, let Baal deal with him. All right. Well, we like Gideon now. Yeah, he's a hero. And so that's what happens. Okay, then what happens? Well, the so the enemy, the enemy within is dealt with. Now the enemy without has to be dealt with, right? Um, you have to deal with the Midianites. And we read in in chapter 6, verse 33, a fresh attack comes against Israel. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the uh, Abiezrites all were called to follow him. And he sent messengers all throughout Manasseh and they too were called to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, and they went up to meet with him. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and is dry on the ground, then I'll know that you'll save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung out enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Let it be dry on the fleece only and all around the ground, let there be dew. And God did that night. It was dry on the fleece only and all the ground there was dew. So that's a very famous putting out a fleece story, right? Um, So we know they're, they're under attack. We read that Gideon, our man, is clothed with the Holy Spirit. He's empowered. He's being empowered to do something remarkable. It's God's very empowering presence, empowering him to act. And we read, I think this is kind of funny. I don't know. He blows the trumpet. He blows the trumpet. And uh, he, he says, you know, I can just see him just kind of like I always think of Lord of the Rings. You know, I think of of Theoden, you know, to me, to me, come around him. He blows the trumpet and he calls the people of Israel, come around me and we are going to shake off the shackles of the Midianites and the Amalekites and those people from the East. We're going to deal with them, right? And so everybody comes around him. And so you could just see him, you know, he's on his horse and all that. Okay, he's not on his horse, but let's say he's there and people are all gathered around like, and he's got his trumpet. And we're going to fight. God has empowered me with the Holy Spirit. And we are going to fight against the Midianites. We are going to overthrow this yoke of slavery. And we are going to be set free. And, and it's great. And so everybody's like, yes, sh- let's go. And he's like, one second, one, 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 moment, one moment. And so what does he do? Like, this is right in the middle. He's re- like, everybody's around him ready to attack. Let's do something, Gideon. <laughs> what does he do? He says, and he goes and he said, and what does he say to God? He says, if, if you will save Israel by my hand, if I need you to do one more thing for me. So you got this fleece, right? And so now you have to get the timeline because the whole fleece thing, the first one, Takes a whole night, right? The next morning finds out, okay, yeah, the fleece is wet. He rings it out. Okay, well, way to go. Now, if I can't, don't let your anger burn against me, but let me try one more thing. Let's say the fleece is dry and the ground, that's another. So 48 hours has gone by and you just wonder what, what are all the people doing? Like, they're all like, where where did Gideon go, right? (laughs) Like, I'm kind of hard. I probably shouldn't be hard. I get that. I I Gideon is scared right he's scared and he wants to be sure and uh you know, so he puts out a fleece but you know what I, I, I'm I am hard on Gideon I shouldn't be because how many times do I do that I'm like God has made it very clear that this is what I need to do his word has shown me very clearly that this is the right thing to do but I'm nervous and so what do I do Oh Lord, just to be on the safe side, you know, you come back and you wait and you stall. and then I have one more sign, you know, because you don't want it because you're scared, right? So I get it. I mean, that's, I, just, I just laugh at all the people around and going, where did Gideon go? Like for 48 hours, right?
1: And uh, David, but in the God, first of the story. Was that? Sorry, in the first of the story, Gideon says, I, I am the smallest one in the tribe. I am the yeah. smallest uh, uh, child, right. and normally they don't expect that they got choose the smallest one that time.
0: That's true. That's true. They, they wouldn't expect. Yeah, and in Gideon, right from the beginning, he is struggling with confidence. Yeah.
1: You, and you I have really one thing that's very weird to come to my mind, because when he sees that angel, the angel doesn't look like angel for him. It looks like normal people, the same as you say in your work, are you waiting for so God's messenger comes to you because it doesn't look like any different between the angel of the Lord and the normal person because he talk even he doesn't respect anything after talking he said okay I bring a food for you, that's really very uh, wow time was for me oh my God then you can miss a lot of messenger around yourself.
0: Yeah, well, and 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 he sees the angel doesn't know it's the angel he thinks it's a person and and so is it is it. He doesn't have eyes to see it. He's, he's looking to have eyes to see. I think that's part of the issue. Now, it's interesting, but in all this, in all and we can't miss this, is that what does God do? I'll give you the fleece. You want the fleece wet? There's the fleeces wet. You want the fleece dry? There, are the fleece is dry. Um, God is incredibly patient. And so you can't miss that. God is very gracious in all this. Now, you guys know this because I've preached on this and we've talked about this over the years. And I mean, the whole idea of putting out fleeces is not a model to emulate. Because in this story, putting out fleeces is a sign of doubt. It's not a sign of faith. It's a sign of like, ah, if you're with me. I mean, God has already closed them with the Holy Spirit. has already said, I'm going to use you. Uh, You're going to take out the Midianites. You'll be like, as one man will take out the entire Midianites. Um, You know, he's spoken to them over and over again. Um, But when Gideon asked for the fleece, it's not a question of, that's not a, you know, sometimes you hear Christians talking about putting out a fleece, putting out a fleece. That's usually a sign of spiritual immaturity and doubt rather than a sign emulate or something to emulate I think think that comes through uh, clear in the story okay so what happens we get the uh, we get all this happening we get the uh, you get the uh, the the fleece that's wet the fleece that's dry um, two-day delay and then what happens look at chapter 7 verse 1 then Gideon and all the people who are with him rose early (laughs) I keep are we going to do this, or do you need another fleece? Uh, no, they, uh, they get up early. This is a good sign. And they, they encamp behind the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was north of them, by the hill of Morak. Morak? Again, yeah, I need my stronger glasses in the valley. Uh, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hands, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people return, and 10,000 remain. We'll keep going in the story in a second. But the day starts pretty good because Gideon gets up or they get up early. Right? Gideon's not sleeping in going. Ah. And he gets up early. Um, Gideon looks around and is like, ha, it's not bad. 32,000 men, 32,000 spears. We're strong, right? Um, And Gideon seems to have a plan. He's moving the the army to the spring of Herod. Uh, From there, he could see the army of the Midianites. Uh, Gideon's army, it seems, is concealed. This is looking good. But then Gideon's about to strike. And God says, you have too many men. And... uh, What he finds out, you know, he's got these thirty-two thousand guys behind him. Are you with me? And they're all like, "Yeah, we're with you." But he doesn't know twenty-two thousand is like, "I don't want to be here." Right? They're afraid, and so he says to the men, "He says, well, guys, you know, if if you're afraid, why don't you go home?" Thinking that maybe seventeen of them would go home or something like that. (laughs) Well, two-thirds of his army kind of march away. He's left with ten thousand people. Which, you know, if you are a, um, a military leader, it's probably good to know at this stage that they are not going to come through in the battle than actually during the battle. Um, but God tells them, you still have too many men. You still have too many men. And uh, he whittles them down. He whittles them down. And, you know, there's, a, there's some pretty strange tests. You guys probably know the story. There's a story, you know, take the men down to a river and, and those who, who drink water by drinking straight out of the, the river. Uh, compared to those who cup the water in their hands and and lick it out of there, and I'll just say those those te- they don't mean anything. They're just kind of strange, strange ways of um, of uh, of whittling. The, the point is God's whittling it down, right? He's whittling it down, and um, he's testing Gideon, and he's testing Gideon because he knows Gideon's nervous, right? And so he's taking away everything from Gideon so that Gideon would put his trust in God and God alone. And that glory would go to God and God alone. But now a whole day has gone by, and it's nighttime while you're whittling it down. And so Gideon started the day going, ha, check it out, 32,000 men. All right. At the end of the day, what has he got? 300. He's got 300 and, uh, and now it's nighttime, and Gideon is scared. He is scared again. Look at chapter 7, verse 8. So the people took provisions in the hand with the trumpets, and he sent the rest of Israel and every man to his tent, but he held on to 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. And that same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and, you'll, and you shall hear what they say. And afterwards, your hands will be strengthened to go down against the camp. What a picture of grace. What a picture of grace. Because God's saying, look, go down against them. It's nighttime. And God says, you know what? If you're still too scared, if you're too afraid, just go down and listen. And, if, and you don't have to go alone. Bring your servant and have a listen. And so Gideon's feeling very alone, very afraid. God knows how he is feeling. And um, so Gideon goes down and he brings his servant. And what does he see? Well, what he sees actually is not that encouraging. He sees lots of camels. And uh, camels, um, it's hard to fight against camels. Um, And the, the armies are like a swarm of locusts, he sees. And, and if you're Gideon, you're like, oh, well, thanks a lot, God. This is really encouraging. They got camels. Uh, you know, they got, you know, there's so many of them. But then they overhear two of the soldiers and they tell of a dream. Look at verse 13. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down. So that the tent lay flat and his comrade answered, well, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Wow. Turns out the Midianites were quite scared. What were they scared of? Well, the very thing that Gideon has a hard time believing that God had given the Midianites into his hands. So Gideon hears all this, and look at his response. This is Gideon, I have to say. I'm kind of hard on the guy, but this this is Gideon at his best. Uh, Look at verse 15. As as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel. He said, wake up, everyone, all 300 of you. The Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided, how you like this, he divides them into even smaller groups, <laughs> uh, divides them into three parts, you know, three groups of a hundred, puts trumpets in their hands, all of them, uh, and empty jars and torches inside of jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as, I do, do as I do when I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Okay. He's worshiped, he sets out and he does, and in this battle, so a big battle, well, not a big battle, but this, the, the result is that the Midians are, are, are scared and they scatter, they end up um, killing uh, each other. And, um, and then they run and they're chased and they're killed. And then their leaders uh, are, are captured, the two princes. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a glorious victory. And in all this, Gideon does five things that we need to pay attention to. He does five really important things. The first thing he does is he gives glory to God. Gives glory to God. The Lord has given you victory over the Midianite horde. Secondly, Gideon takes the lead. He says, follow me. And we have to, I mean, when does Gideon ever do that, right? But he's now, he's, he's encouraged. Follow me. Thirdly, he shows great resourcefulness. Yes, he's outnumbered, but he's not afraid anymore. He's not afraid. He takes advantage of the night, right? This night that he was all afraid of. He's all scared. But now he sees, oh, this is actually an advantage. And he makes his force seem much bigger than it actually is. And he divides them into three groups. The fourth thing he does is he presses home his advantage. He calls for reinforcements and orders them to cut off the Midianites at the pass, at the Jordan. And he captures and he executes, he has executed Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite princes. And finally, he shows actually great wisdom. Because if you know the story, after the battle's done, um, the uh, Ephraimites come up and they're like, dude, why did you leave us out? Are we not also part of Israel? We would have loved to have joined you. Why did you leave us out? And they're mad. They're mad. But Gideon, he he, he talks them down. He talks them down and and the matter passes. And it's a reminder that a soft answer turns away wrath. Proverbs 15.1. And so this is Gideon. I'll tell you, this is Gideon at his height. He's resourceful. He's wise. He leads. He gives glory to God, and he worships. And this is is the ascent of a leader. And at this stage, Gideon, yes, he's flawed. Yes, there's some flaws and some cracks, but that's okay. We're all that way. But he shows some pretty good leadership. He shows some pretty good leadership. But he is not a leader that finishes well. He's not a leader that finishes well. And this, some of you know this because I, I, I talk about it quite often. This, And maybe it's my age. I think it might be my age as part of it. Um, being a very young person, I'm just, that's what I mean by that. Um, what I'm noticing is, is I'm, I'm noticing how much in the Bible, how much the Bible talks about finishing well. And how many stories you come across in the Bible of people who do not finish well. Like, I didn't realize how, 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 how much of a theme that is actually in, in, in Scripture. Of people starting the race well, but not finishing well. And uh, it's been on my radar. And Gideon is, is a, he's a textbook case of this, right? Um, he is a person who is very gifted very scared very nervous unsure of himself and yet by walking with god and god's dealing with him he grows in confidence and becomes quite a gifted leader a really gifted leader um but he doesn't finish well so what goes wrong this is i think this this is really important for us to pay attention we need to see what went wrong with gideon because what went wrong with gideon um, can maybe speak into our own life. Well, everything goes wrong with Gideon when he crosses a boundary, and the boundary is a physical boundary. Um, he leaves; he crosses the Jordan, and he leaves the land of Canaan. Look at chapter eight, verse four. And Gideon came to the Jordan. And crossed over, he and his 300 men who were with him, exhausted, yet pursuing. So he said to the man of Sukkoth, Please give us loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they're exhausted, and I'm pursuing uh, Ze- Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Sukkoth said, Are the hands of Zebah and Zalmunna already, are the, he- the hands in, in, in your hand, that we should give you bread for your army? And Gideon said, well, then, when the Lord has given us these two kings I <laughs> say, into my hands, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there, he went up to Pe- Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I'll break down this tower. Okay. And so he's chasing these two kings. Zeba and Zalmuna, and he's chasing them. They got about 15,000 men. So what's going on here? Well, we know that Israel's problems started when the Midianites crossed the boundary, when they invaded the land, right? But now they've been defeated. They have been defeated. They're on the run. And so in many ways, Gideon has won. He could go home. They've been taught a lesson. Maybe the land will have rest, and the people will turn back to God. But Gideon is not satisfied. He's not satisfied. There is something that drives him to go after these guys. What is that something? Well, he's after these two big fish, these two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmuna. They're big, they're the big fish that Gideon's after. And in some respects, from a, military, from a military perspective, it kind of makes sense. These are the two kings. Finish the job. Go in. Take out the big kings. And that will guarantee Israel a long bit of peace, right? Maybe. It makes sense. But this army still had 15,000 men. Um. And maybe Gideon's thinking, well, if they regroup and they attack us again, we'll be in trouble. So maybe we should just take them out. So in Gideon's mind, the job is not done until he captures these two kings. So it, it makes sense. But there's something, there's something else going on here. There's something else going on here. Things are not as they seem. And, and a different Gideon seems to be emerging. For starters, he's no longer supported by the tribes of Israel. Naphtali, Asher, Ephraim, all these people who supported him or wanted to support him, they left. They're no longer with him. The guys who are with them, they're exhausted. They are exhausted. They are exhausted and they're pursuing this, these two kings. And they're getting no support. They come to Sukkoth. Hey, can you give us some food? Uh, no. Uh, they go to Penuel. No. And so... He's not so, he, so. Gideon doesn't have the support that he had earlier. So what's going on here? I, I thought about this. You guys have probably seen this. Have you ever seen a leader? Could be a political leader. Could be a church leader. That um, when they insist on in having their own way, when they insist that their way is the highway. No, there are ways the right, right. There are wrong ways the highway. I forget how the expression goes. Anyhow, when they want to do their own, go things want things to go the wrong way. Um, often they end up alone. And I've seen leaders like this. They're so bent on getting their own way that they end up alienating people that that used to support them, but they don't support them anymore. I've seen this in the church. I've seen this with leaders, and this seems to be happening to Gideon. Secondly, you know, Gideon, he talked down Ephraim, and Ephraim said, hey, how come you didn't involve us? You know, Gideon actually speaks softly to them and and kind of brings uh, brings them around. Here, he's speaking to the leaders of Sukkoth and Penuel. They They refuse to give food to Gideon and his men, and Gideon is livid. He's absolutely livid. Because on one hand, for Gideon, this request for food is reasonable. I'm your leader. I do, we just won this great battle. We're pursuing these two kings It's in your best interest. Give us some food, and we'll finish the job. It makes sense, right? But these two villages, these two towns, they're on the very edge. <laughs> they're right on, the, right on the boundary. And in their mind, they're probably thinking, We don't know if you're going to, we don't know if you're you're going to be successful. If you're not successful, guess who the Midianites are going to come after first? We're the ones that are, are at risk. They're going to come after us. And so they said, no, not until we see you've captured these guys, then maybe we'll help you out, right? Gideon doesn't speak softly to them. He says, all right, because you don't help us out, when I come back, you're toast, I'm going to take my revenge against you. These are Israelites. Third thing is, I don't know if you realized, but in this whole story towards the end, the whole second section, it's, it's interesting to take a look at it. God is hardly mentioned. God is hardly mentioned at all. Gideon refers to God twice, but only to justify his own actions. It's Gideon and Gideon alone who's calling the shots. And finally, you see a hardened heart. Look what happens. This is such an interesting passage. Look what happens in chapter 8, verse 20. Move down there. Okay, so they they actually capture the king. We'll be back up to verse 18. Uh, Then he says to Zeba and Zaluma, we're the men whom you killed at Tabor. Oh, okay, yeah, interesting. Yeah, look at verse 18. Actually, it gives it away, but let's look at it. He says to Zeba and Zalumna, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? And they answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. But then he says to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. He tells his son to do this. But the young man does not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Zeban and Zalumna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as a man is, so is his strength. And so Gideon arose and he killed them. And he took the crescent ornaments that were on their neck next to the camels. Gideon captures these kings, and rather than killing them, he has his son do it. He wants his son to do it. But Gideon, Gideon's son is a chip off the old block. He's scared, right? He's scared. And so he gets taunted, and he just kills them. And in verse 22, it's interesting what the people say. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of the Midians. Now, Gideon does say, to his credit, I will not rule over you, and my son nor will rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Okay, good. Um, the people want Gideon to be king. Now, not everybody was wanted Gideon to be king. Succoth. What happens to Succoth when he comes back? Do you guys recall? And he came to the men of Succoth, and he says, um, and he broke down. Uh, and he took the elders of the city and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars with them, uh, With them, taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson. So I don't know what he did. He he's scourged the leaders. And then he goes to Penuel, that was the other town, and he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. So he tortures the leaders of one town and he kills the men in the second town. These are Israelites that he's doing this to. These are fellow Israelites. And it's, it's a horrifying portent of what's to come in the book of Judges. The remaining people, they like, okay, Gideon, be our king. They, will, they want him to be king, but God is not praised. Only Gideon is. Now, Gideon says, oh, okay, I won't rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. But his actions say something completely different. Because what does Gideon do? At this stage, Gideon has all the people say, give me your gold, give me your gold. And so I can make an ephod, which is this this garment that you can use to inquire of the Lord. But the ephod, so he makes this thing out of this gold. The ephod that he makes is kind of like an idol, more than a priestly garment. And also what is Gideon doing? Making a priestly ephod. Why? Why is he doing this? Do you guys see this part? Yeah, you remember this part. This is in uh, verse twenty-four. Verse twenty-four. And Gideon said to him, "Let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from from his spoil, for they had golden earrings." And they answered, "We will willingly give them." And he spread the cloak. Every man threw in the earrings. He had lots of gold. Um, And then Gideon, verse 27, made an ephod of it and put it in his city, in Ophrah. And all Israel, in my translation, whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Okay. And um, it's interesting that uh, he, like, why is Gideon doing this? Like, this is the role of a priest. And plus, in, in, in the land, there is a, land, a place called Shiloh, and that is where God is worshipped. That's where the ark was, right? But here Gideon, it's, it, it reminds you of another story when he takes all this gold and he makes something. What does it remind you of? Aaron. Yeah, Aaron and the golden calf. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's Aaron and the golden calf all over again. Instead of honoring God, what, what he makes draws Israel away from God. And, and the irony here is that Gideon starts off and his whole goal at the beginning is to lead Israel out of idolatry, right? He breaks through the um, altar of Baal. He cuts down the Asherah pole, right? And then at the end of his life, what's he doing? He's leading them back into idolatry. And the fact is, we read that the land had rest for 40 years. I mean, that's a picture of God's grace. That's God's grace in the midst of everything. Yeah, it's it's a priestly garment in which you would uh, have the um, um yeah, where the priest would inquire of the, uh, of the Lord. Urum uh, and Thummum. I thank you. <laughs> I, I was going to say Uma Thurman, and I realized that that wasn't right. <laughs> yeah, no, and that's where they would inquire of the Lord. So, Gene, uh, what's your question? Do I think. Yeah, maybe, except you see signs of the corruption happening earlier because why does he go after these two kings? What's that? They challenge them? Well, he kills them because they taunt him, yeah. But why, why, does, why does he go after them in the first place? There's something really important. The, the reason why he goes after these kings is actually shown in this passage. It's not in order to defeat the Midianites. Yeah, it reminds you of another king that, that's to come. Who does it remind you of? Saul. It does remind you of Saul a little bit, yeah where Saul's just more pregnant. But here's the thing. Why did Gideon go after those kings? Because of the gold? No, not because of the gold. It's actually in in the passage. Why does he go after them? Is this no? What's that? Because of the Ephraimites, what they said? To give himself a reason to go after the people of Sukkot. Right, so he gets more and more violent to assure that this victory will, will continue. Well, he had made the promise to the people of Sukkoth that he, once he got these two guys, he was going to come back and, and have his revenge on them. So then that kind of forced him to get the two guys so he could bring them back and then have his way with the men of Sukkoth. Right, okay. So, uh, I'm going to make good well, on my promise, so I'm going to catch them so I can make good on my promise. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, that, that makes sense. Now, how about this one? Okay. He, he states at the beginning that he's uh, from the least important clan of a lesser important tribe. And so now he's going out on his own. God's saved Israel, but now he's going to put his father's clan, or now his clan, at the top of the, the pecking order with his various uh, earring tacks. And uh, and now he's going to be the man with his effort. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. But I mean, the, the answer is actually right in the uh, in the text. Look what it says. Um, let's see.
1: Um,
0: okay, look at verse eighteen, chapter eight, verse eighteen. Then he says to Zeba and Zal- Zalmuna, and he speaks to the king, "Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? Which men?" we actually we we don't this is news Mm -hmm. to us we don't know about this they answered as you are so were they they kind of look like you every one of them resembled the son of a king Mm -hmm. and he says they were my brothers the sons of my mother so why is he going after them for revenge because they had killed his brothers. Isn't that it? So it's this, this whole glorious, you know, we got to take down Midianites, the Midianites in order to rescue Israel. Not, none of that was true. It was a Rambo mission to take out and to bring out revenge against those who killed his brothers. So, this isn't being done in God's name. This isn't being done empowered by the Holy Spirit. This isn't in order to honor God's vision for Israel. This is you killed my brothers and I will kill you. What a change. He went after them. This is not a mission that he was given, he was pursuing his own agenda. It's not God's anymore. God has kind of left the whole um, consideration. So he's riding the wave of what God had done in his life. Okay, now that is interesting. That's such an interesting point because that's why I think Gideon is such an important lesson for leaders, especially Christian leaders. Because when you and I run ahead of God, we're in a lot of trouble. Well, God, you were faithful in the past, Thank you for all that. I got it from here. I'll tell you, that is a challenge for every leader. It could be in business, it could be whatever it happens to be. As you're walking with God and you walk with God for a while and you become kind of confident, you just like, you know what, God? You don't actually say this, but in your actions, it's like, I got this. And you carry on on your own. And that's, that might've been part of it. But it's it's this revenge mission that he goes on. And I think Gideon in this story has so much to say to us in in the church and especially as leaders. And so let's look at a couple of these things. One is this. I think this story is a reminder how easy it is for a good leader to go wrong. It's a it's a it's a warning how a good leader could go wrong and I don't need to point, bring up names, but there have been names in the media in the last two or three weeks of very well-known Christian leaders that may not have been as perfect as we thought they were and had gone in wrong directions. And there's a danger. There's a danger in the Christian life, and this is one of the biggest dangers. And when I'm uh, working with our interns, um, these are all future Church leaders, probably, um, I say to them, I said one of the things you have to be careful with in 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 the church is um, don't believe your own press. Don't believe your own press, because you can always find people that will come around you and say, "Oh, look how great you're doing! Look how good you!" And this is just not in church leaders. This is just in the church. It's easy to get cheerleaders, especially on social media. You get all your friends who are all giving you thumbs up. They're all liking your picture. They're all doing this. And it's easy to create this bubble where it's just mutual reinforcement. And, uh, that is one of the the dangers. And in the church, it's, it's very, it's, it's, we have to be careful in church leadership. It's very easy to hide in church leadership. Um, because nobody, and, oh, I've said this before, one of the best places to hide from God is the church. It really is. You can hide from God in the church because nobody expects, nobody will suspect that you have, you're having nothing to do with God. Because you're going to church every week. Hey, you're coming to class. Of course you're a strong Christian. It's a great place to hide from God. I remember Wayne Cadero, he's a pastor in, um, in Hawaii, and he talked about burning out as a leader and he said there came a point when he was preaching. He says he used to preach this way. He used to take the word, speak to his heart, and then speak to the people. And it said something happened to his heart where he just took the word and he was just giving, but it was never touching here. And it almost did a number on him. It almost, he almost burned out. So that's the first one. There's a, the story is a reminder how easy it is for a good leader to go wrong. It's a good warning. Secondly, this is a danger. There is a danger when we equate our agenda with God's. Now, one of my favorite books is uh, this novel written by Walter Wongren. And the novel is called The Book of Sorrows. Has anybody read that? Have you read that There's The Book of the Dun Cow. That's the first one. The second one is The Book of Sorrows. Denise, you've read it, right? Yeah. And uh, the book of, it's, 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 um, it's almost like a parable, like the main character is a rooster, just so you know, and there's animals. But it's a really interesting book. And the Book of Sorrows is uh, Eugene Peterson had us read it. Because he says in, in the Book of Sorrows, you've got this main character. And what happens is he begins to equate his personal agenda with God's. And so whatever he decided, that had to be God's. And I've seen this happen in leadership where Christian leaders, they say, hey, this is what I think God wants us to do. Follow me. and, and it, But it's not. It's, it's their personal agenda. And that's what you see with Gideon. Follow me. His men are almost dying. They're starving to death. They're exhausted. They think they're doing something in the name of God. It's just Gideon carrying out a revenge mission. The third thing is this. We need to know our hearts and where we are susceptible to temptation. Some boundaries should never be crossed. And that's really important. So we need to know our hearts. Because what tempts, you know, what tempts Jeremy? <laughs> uh, what tempts Martha? What tempts Kevin is different than what tempts me, right? We're all different. Our hearts are, are, are different. And so we're, we're, we're tempted in different ways. And so you need to understand your heart. When you get up in the morning, realize that before you go to bed that night, that you could do something that will ruin your integrity and your ministry. (laughs) It's not hard. And one of the questions that um, Denisa, my colleague Denisa asks, our potential pastoral apprentices is this really good question. If the evil one were to take you down, how would he do it? You think about your own life. If the evil one was going to bring you down, What would be the strategy to bring you down? The fourth lesson that comes out of this, I think, is this. Don't beat the sheep. I'm quoting uh, Pastor Mark. He always says this. Don't beat the sheep. Uh, There's a huge difference between exhorting your people to grow and pushing them out of your way. And what Gideon does with the guys in Sukkoth and with the guys in Penuel is like, give us some food. If you don't give us food, well, in this case, I'm going to kill you. Follow me. We're going to kill these kings. We're going to get these kings. And if you, know, if you don't follow me. You know, like Gideon by the end. He's this angry person. And he. He, he, is, he, um, he treats those. That he's supposed to be leading poorly. And there's a big difference. Between honoring God. And honoring yourself. And being justly angry. And being just angry. I don't know about you. But I know. I'll speak for myself. When I'm not walking with God, then I'm kind of doing my own thing. I get angry so easily. Little things get me really angry. And I my anger is out of proportion for what it should be. And yet when I'm walking with God and I have that perspective that all shall be well and that I can live my life before an audience of one. When somebody cuts me off or when somebody says something very hurtful, it doesn't hurt, it doesn't hurt the same way. And I've, I've met a lot of leaders who are just very angry, very angry, and they beat the sheep. They preach in a way and they just use the word of God as a club and they hit people with it. And usually when a leader is coming towards the end of their, their time, they're just angry up front. Pastor Mark and I talk about that. Quite often, we see that. The fifth thing is this. Be very careful what happens when your spiritual gifts overwhelm the fruit of the spirit. Gideon was, it turns out, he was quite gifted. When he stepped up, he was gifted. I mean, even to go after those kings and to actually capture them with an exhausted army, fighting a very large army, tells you something about Gideon. I mean, he 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 is a, he was a gifted leader who grew in his gifting, but he did not grow in the fruit of the Spirit. And that's a problem. And I, I met a guy once um, who was uh, a remarkable preacher, a remarkable preacher. And um, when he started off preaching, uh, he was so gifted. He was, he was one of the best preachers I've ever heard and uh, when he started off preaching, he was just a, a young man, and, and, and an older wise person came up to him and said, look, young man, you really need to stay close to God and pray and, and, and cling and depend upon God, the work of the Spirit in your life. Because here's the thing, you're so gifted, you're so gifted, you could probably just rely on your gifts, not depend on God, and you could go years before anybody would notice So be very careful you don't do that. And the last thing I think that comes out of this is that there's a danger when we idolize our leaders, when we make our leaders perfect. Um, You know, Gideon, we want you to be our king. As we look at next week, his son is uh, Abimelech, which means the son of a king. I think that's what it means. (laughs) And so there's a sense, this self-understanding that I'm a king that he was a king. Um, We have to be careful when we idolize our leaders. When I became a Christian, the person who led me to Christ said to me, he says, everybody's going to let you down. Just so you know, David, every person's going to let you down. I'm like, no, not you. Because this guy is a great guy. I can see other people, but not him. He says, no, no. He goes, I will let you down. You will be disappointed with me. The only one who won't let you down is Jesus. And sure enough, within a few months, he did something that really hurt me. I'm like, but I was so glad that he said that because I would have been really devastated. But I'm like, oh, yeah, he did tell me that that was going to happen. And so be careful we don't idolize our leaders. Interesting. There's this uh, book that I'm reading that I read uh, called The Art of Pastoring. And Denise, you'll, you'll know about the, what I'm going to talk about. Um, the guy is David Hansen, who's the, uh, the author. He's a pastor from Montana. Brilliant book. Brilliant book. And uh, Hanson Hansen talks about the difference in, in, in church leadership. He says there's a big difference between being a parable of Jesus and being an um and being a symbol of God. He says when you're a parable of Jesus, you're living out the story of Jesus in your life and in how you're living, you're drawing people to the character and the activity of God. And so he says, when we live our lives, when we do good, when we're showing kindness, when we're, when we're showing compassion, we're caring and we're praying and we are a living parable of Jesus. The danger is when we become a symbol of God. And that is when somebody looks at you and goes, Oh, Heather, you could do nothing wrong. You are awesome. You are, and, and people in, your, in their mind, they look at you and you're like, you're just perfect. You're just, she's absent. And they, they make you almost into a symbol of God. Now, two things can happen. Two things can happen. One, they can be disappointed, right? Two, before they're disappointed, while they're still enamored, you can use that as power over someone. Because You are God to them. And a lot of abuse and a lot of horrible things happen when people take on the persona as the symbol of God. We're not to be symbols of God. We are to be living parables of Jesus. Hope that makes sense. It's a a really interesting comment in, in that book. So where do we put our hope? We put our hope in Jesus Christ who not only started well, but he finished well. Uh, he started well, and he finished well. And no other person should we put our hope in. Does that make sense? And speaking of finishing well, it's 825. <laughs> well, I, didn't I finish well, right? Uh, <laughs> Why is Gideon in the Hall of Fame in Hebrews? Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it goes back to um, what Sharon pointed out, and and that is that um, the Hall of Fame, the Hall of Faith in um, in the in the Book of Hebrews, is looking at people who who started here and that showed remarkable faith in their life. Because you know Samson's in there as well. And Samson, make, Gideon makes sense. <laughs> Gideon's an angel compared to Samson, but they're both in there. But they both, at different times in their life, exhibit faith. And, 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 and Gideon does. He does. And when he's at his peak, he is walking with God, and he shows remarkable faith. 300 men going against you know, thousands of, of Midianites, and not even using a sword, but just using strategy and trusting that God was truly going to hand the Midianites into his hands. I think that is a, a, a remarkable picture of faith. Uh, but he doesn't finish well. But I think, again, in the Bible, there are no heroes save one, and that's God. Yeah, it's a picture of God. Well, God's grace, and that's the thing in the book of Judges, it's, it's hard to see it, but God's grace runs right through. Like the way he treats Gideon with all of his foibles, with all of his concerns, with all of his fears and misunderstandings, God is remarkable, uh, remarkably patient. And even when Gideon goes off the rails at the end, we still know as a result of all this that the land had rest, right? And so the grace is still very strong in in, in the story of Judges. Now, Gideon is pivotal. He is the pivot point. He is the very important pivot point in the entire book of Judges. It's almost right in the middle of the book of Judges. From this point on, it, 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 it changes. And some of the uh, judges that are raised up, boy, they are, they're quite the crew. Yeah, <laughs> Wait till, yeah we look at them in a couple of weeks. Well, even next week, uh, Abimelech. But uh, there's lots, lots that we can learn as we make our way through this. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of C.A. Church.